I want to pray one more time. Father God, circumcise our ears and our hearts to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. In advance, O oh God, I pray that we would not only be listeners, hearers, but we'd also be doers of your word. We'd be like the wise man who built his house on a rock, on a solid foundation. And when winds and storms and trials came, he stood firm. God, we want to stand firm for you to the end. Strengthen us and keep us. We ask now in Jesus' name, amen. 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 I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I've had a wonderful time in the Word of God this weekend. And you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to repeat it. You think you know a Bible story or a Bible verse until the Holy Spirit pulls back the drapes. And you see something, wow, I've read that a hundred times when I never saw that before. And I'm convinced that there's no bottom. This is unsearchable. You could read the Bible five million times and you're still going to find something new each time. And I'm excited about some of the things the Lord has been showing me. And it's not just to come up with a cute sermon. These are things that are important in my own life, in my own family, and I trust that they will be relevant to you also. 2 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read from verse 3 down to verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes and he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The title of my message is going to tell you where we're going with this. It's called, It's All in the Head. It's All in the Head. And I'm sure you've heard, we even sang about it earlier this morning, it wasn't planned, but I think the Holy Spirit put that song in there, about strongholds being broken. That's a biblical term, we just read it. There are strongholds. And I think the word speaks for itself. Some Bibles translate it fortress. But these are strong things. They're, they're not easily brought down. They're not easily penetrated. They're, they're very, very strong and very fortified. And that's what a stronghold's for. That's what a fortress is for. If you're being besieged by an enemy, you want to have a fortress between you and the enemy. But if the enemy has erected the fortress, the stronghold, it has to be pulled down. It has to be broken. And Paul is talking about the latter. He's talking about some kind of weapons and some kind of war against strongholds. These are not good strongholds. These are bad ones. 
And we want to understand today from God's Word how to demolish a stronghold. And sometimes I think we imagine these strongholds are up in heaven somewhere, some big, you know, dark fence or wall up there in heaven. There may be some stuff like that up there, I don't know. But in the context... Paul's not talking about something way up in heaven. He's talking about something inside the head. He's talking about the mind. And if you follow the three verses that we read carefully, you'll see that. Let me go back and touch on a few other things first. First of all, we're in a war. Does anybody understand that? No one. Anthony does. We're in a war. Whether you like it or not, whether you signed up for it or not, we're in a war. It's a spiritual war. And Paul is saying, don't even think that you can wage this spiritual war with worldly, physical, carnal weapons. They don't work. They don't have any power. And that's why he says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The world uses bombs, guns, knives, anything they can get their hands on to fight and destroy one another. But we don't have that kind of a weapon. The weapons we fight with, notice that, we are fighting. We are fighting. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And in addition to tanks and bombs and guns and scissors and stones and anything else people can get on to harm one another, what's one of the most powerful weapons of all? Come on, somebody help me. Words. Words. Oh, the Bible has a lot to say about the damage, the hurt, the harm that words can do. So we're not even going to be able to use worldly words, arguments, quarrelings, and fightings with words. They're not going to work in this war. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Here's the part I like. On the contrary, they have divine power. Say that with me. They have divine power. I like that. Divine power. They have divine power to do what? To demolish strongholds. You try any kind of a weapon, and you're going to be just beaten against a brick wall. Nothing's going to move, nothing's going to come down, nothing's going to happen. Because worldly weapons don't do anything to spiritual strongholds. Now, it doesn't specifically say... But obviously, these are not good strongholds, and therefore they must have been built up by the enemy. These are demonic. These are dark strongholds, and we can see that even more clearly in verse 5. We demolish... What? Arguments. Huh. I thought this was a stronghold. It is. That's what strongholds are. They're in the head. They're in the mind. Arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
If you study the words, they can also be translated reasonings. It's all about things that are going on in the mind. So these strongholds that we're going to be demolishing are not way up in heaven somewhere. They're not down in hell. They're in the head. And if we use the right weapons, Paul says we have divine power to demolish every argument, every pretension, any high thing, one Bible says, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. Final proof that we're dealing with the mind here. Thoughts, arguments, reasonings that the enemy plants in people's minds that are set against the knowledge of God. They don't want to hear the Word of God. They don't want to hear about Christ. There's already already a fortress that's been erected in the mind. I'm sure you've had experiences trying to share Christ with someone, and they've already got this big wall of defense, arguments, and all kinds of things that they're ready to fire back at you. That's called a stronghold. Don't make the mistake that I've often made of trying to argue with them in a fleshly, carnal, worldly way. You might win the argument and you lose the soul. We're not interested in winning arguments. We want to demolish strongholds. And we need to pray that God would give us understanding and revelation about these weapons that have divine power. And I'm not going to specifically be teaching on spiritual warfare today, but you can also read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. We've often looked at those verses. Uh, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Put on the whole armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. We're in a wrestling match, whether we like it or not. And we better have the right armor, the right weapons, sword of the Spirit, shield of faith, and all of that, so that we can stand against these enemy dark forces. And Paul emphasizes there again, this is not a flesh and blood battle. I find even after 42 years in ministry, I have to remind myself, this isn't about flesh and blood. It's not about my son, my daughter, my boss, my husband, my wife, the president, or this person. These are spiritual battles. And demons and Satan himself, you can see it all throughout the Bible, he uses people. One time, right after Peter had received a great revelation from God, the next thing you know, Jesus is addressing Satan, talking to Peter. Well, who is he talking to, Peter or Satan? Well, Satan was using Peter, and Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. So Satan can use anybody and anything at certain times to try to bring about his schemes, his strategies, and his plans. This isn't a flesh and blood battle that we're in. It's not about people. I want to show you another passage in 2 Corinthians that I had never connected before this weekend that again shows the battlefield is really in the head. It's in the mind. Look in 2 Corinthians 4. Hopefully you're following along with us on Wednesday nights in our Bible study, Show Us Your Glory. And we're going to be dealing a lot in 2 Corinthians 4 
about the glory of God. We're going to be dealing with the glory of God in the New Testament. And these are key verses in 2 Corinthians 4. And I want you to listen carefully to this. Verses 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. Even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Anybody who has not seen the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is in the process of perishing. They're perishing, they're going to hell, they're going to an eternity separated from the life and the love of God. That's their condition apart from the gospel. The devil knows that. That's why he is very, very active. He doesn't care if you attend church once in a while. He doesn't care if you're religious a little bit. What he's very, very upset about is somebody seeing and hearing and understanding the gospel. Here's why. Verse 4. The God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the what? Blinded the what? It doesn't say eyes. Blinded the minds. The battle is in the mind. That's where he starts to erect these strongholds of arguments and reasoning. Oh, I can't believe in a God that loves me. I can't believe in this fairy tale about Jesus dying on a cross, being buried and rising three days again. There's the stronghold. Where is it? In the mind. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the what? The light of the gospel of what? The glory of Christ. This isn't just about getting saved. This is the gospel of glory. Satan does not want you and me to understand the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And therefore he works in the mind to blind it. Verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then Paul seems to get totally off course here, but he's not. And he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 verse 3. And he quotes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's what Genesis 1 3 says, let there be light. That God who spoke in the darkness has made His light shine in our hearts. And here it comes again. To give us the light of the knowledge of the what? Glory of God in the face of Christ. You can't separate the gospel from the glory of God. The gospel is not just to give us forgiveness of sins. Praise God for that. But God wants to show us His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Satan, knowing that, works overtime to blind minds so that they don't pay attention to the good news of the gospel. And he doesn't mind if you're in church once in a while, you're a little bit religion, maybe even carry a Bible around. What he is very concerned about is when somebody's mind opens up and the light of God starts to shine in there. That troubles him greatly. And he will fight against that for the rest of your life. And you have to fight for your mind and your thoughts 
to remain centered on Christ, because he will also try to bring those strongholds into your mind, arguments, reasonings. Oh, I don't know if the Bible's true. I don't know if we can believe that. It's a different translation. Da-da-da-da-da. There comes a stronghold. Now, these weapons that Paul talks about, whatever they are, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we're not going to speak specifically about the weapons today. I'm sure in the list we would include things like the Word of God, fasting and prayer, the blood of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual weapons that we have that can demolish strongholds, especially the Word of God. The Word of God, we're told in Ephesians 6, is our sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's our offensive weapon to do great harm to the enemy and to his strongholds. Now, on Wednesday night in our Bible study, we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It was the very symbol of God's presence and glory. And in 1 Samuel 4, we were studying how Israel lost the glory of God. You see, God can show you His glory, He can also take it away. And very, very sad time in Israel's history in 1 Samuel 4, because the Philistines, the enemies of God, not only defeated them on the battlefield, but they stole the Ark of the Covenant, something that had never happened before. And when news of that came back to Eli the priest, he fell over and died. When news of that, that the Ark had been captured, that Eli had died and both of his sons had died, his daughter-in-law was pregnant, she immediately went into labor, and as she was giving birth to a son, she died. And she gave the child a most unusual name, Ichabod. It literally means without glory or no glory. And the reason she named him Ichabod was because the glory of God had departed from Israel. They lost the ark, which was synonymous with losing the glory and the presence of God. You know, we can lose a lot of things in life, but God help us not to lose His presence and His glory. We are totally lost when that happens. And they knew it. And more than 20 years went by before that ark of glory was finally returned to Jerusalem during the time of King David. But in 1 Samuel 5, I want you to look at this with me. Something very peculiar, almost humorous, but it's also very powerful, takes place. The Philistines, the enemies of Israel, they've now got the Ark of the Covenant. They've stolen it. And they take it to the temple of their number one god. This was the chief Philistine god named Dagon. Some of the literature indicates that it means fish, and it was a, some kind of a weird half-fish, half-human 
statue. I, do, I really don't even know or care. It was some kind of a false god that they worshipped, and it was their chief god. I want you to remember this, because it's going to be very important to where I'm taking you today. Chief god of the Philistines, Dagon. So you know what they do? Very arrogantly, they take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, and they set it right in front of his statue. To show, ha ha, we conquered the God of Israel. Dagon rules. Dagon is number one. Hmm. It was okay till they got up the next morning. First Samuel 5. We'll read 1-7. to seven. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, uh-oh, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Now this is just a statue. It's a dead statue. But how many of you know God has a sense of humor? I do. And there's just something humorous about this. That here they're trying to show, Ha, we conquered the God of Israel. We've got Him now in our temple. And Dagon rules. And the very next morning, there's Dagon prostrate, bowing down before the God of Israel. They didn't like that. So, they quickly took Dagon, put him back in his place. All is well now. But, the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, I love it, fallen on his face, once again, before the ark of the Lord. But this time, his head and hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand. You see, this Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't just a box covered with gold. God. God was with it. The presence of God was there. And the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because His hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. Hmm. Head and hands broken off. What was broken off first? The head. They would always go for the head first when they were killing an enemy. Cut off the head first. Very symbolic. And I don't know if you can see what I'm seeing here, but Dagon for me represents one of these strongholds. It's a demonic stronghold. Something that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. 
And Paul says, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. He didn't just get knocked to the ground. He got demolished. Head and hands broken off. Totally useless, powerless in the presence of God. Now, remember Dagon, okay? And remember of all the gods, and they had other ones, the, the gods that the Philistines worshipped, Dagon was their chief god. They had Baal, who according to the literature, um, Dagon is Baal's father. <laughs> what nonsense. And so they worshipped Dagon above all their other gods. Now, you may think, where are you going with this? First Samuel 17. If you know your Bible, you know we're going to be looking at David and Goliath. What nation was Goliath a part of? The Philistines. Here they are again, Israel fighting against the Philistines. And you know the story. I'm going to just read portions of it. But here they are, lined up on the battlefield, Philistines on one side, Israel on the other. They've been there for a long time. Forty days in all. And I want you to listen carefully to this, because this really spoke to me about some things that we often experience as Christians. Um, let's read a little bit about Goliath. It says in verse 4, 1 Samuel 17, 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Dude, that's tall. Nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was swung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Um, I'm reading here the just the um, the spear head was 15 pounds. <laughs> Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, Goliath can represent a lot of different things. But I'll tell you one thing I know it represents. It represents one of these strongholds that confronts you every morning and every night and says, you're not going to get any better. Your kids aren't, are never going to get saved. 
You're never going to get healed. You're never going to go anywhere in life. It's there every morning and every night. And it keeps defying the people of God. That's what he said. I defy the ranks of Israel. And I don't think I even need to ask you, hopefully you're spiritual enough to recognize that as you're walking with Christ, there are things that are defying you. Do you all get that? There are things that are trying to resist you in your walk with God. They're trying to slow down your progress. They're trying to discourage you. They're trying to paralyze you. Along comes David. His older brothers, they're old enough to be on the battlefield. He's just sent there as a little messenger boy to deliver them some cheese and some bread. I love it. And when he comes out onto the battlefield, he immediately sees this giant, Goliath, on the opposite side, taunting, shouting, mocking the armies of Israel. And I want you to pay close attention to verse 16. You got it? For 40 days. Say that with me. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and again in the evening and took his stand. What kind of an effect was this having on the Israelites? It was wearing them down. It was discouraging them. And you'll actually see that in parts of the story. They were afraid. They were dismayed. And you know, after 40 days of this morning and night, morning and night, morning and night, it really starts to wear on you. I don't know if you've ever had a Goliath in your life. I have. Doesn't leave you alone. You fast, you pray, you claim some scriptures, and you get kind of built up in your faith, but then you wake up the next morning, and he's back there, shouting, defying, saying you're never going to make it. Your situation is never going to get better. You're not going anywhere in life. And it goes on. Forty days this has been happening. And so here's little David. And he's starting to get wind of all this that's going on. And as David is talking with his brothers. Drop down to verse 23. As he's talking with his brothers. Goliath, the Philistine champion stepped out from his lines, and listen carefully, shouted his usual defiance. It has now become usual. It's just become a normal part of the day. Listening to all this taunting, shouting, and mocking coming from this Philistine giant. I like the last four words. And David heard it. Everybody else heard it. But David heard something different. Man, this made David's blood boil. This was not going to go over well with David. He did not like anyone defying his God or his people. And it riled him up when he heard it. When all the Israelites saw the man, they ran from him in great fear. You see... Forty days has beaten them down. They have no faith. They have no courage. They're completely demoralized now. 
Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. But you know, David has a different question in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, listen carefully, the armies of the living God? You see, David's God was a living God. That he should defy the armies of the living God. And just before that, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? I am convinced there are Goliaths that want to disgrace the name of God, want to disgrace the gospel, want to disgrace you and me, so that Satan can go on blinding the minds of people saying, oh, those Christians, they're all fools. That gospel, that's a bunch of garbage. We don't even want to pay attention to that. This is his job. To disgrace and then to beat down and to demoralize the people of God. Morning and night, morning and night, morning and night. He goes on defying, defying, defying. But David cannot rest hearing this man shouting all of his taunts and all of his rebellious defiance. And in verse 32, David goes to the king. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. You know, sometimes when you walk by faith, the things you say and the things you do sound so ridiculous to those who have no faith. All they can do is laugh. This was no laughing matter for David, though. He's dead serious. Saul says, you are not able to fight. Go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. He has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. And here it comes again. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. After hearing all that, Saul says, go for it. If you've killed bears and lions, maybe this will work. We're pretty desperate. Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David... In his own tunic, he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these. I can just imagine little David with this huge coat of armor and this big old sword. He can't even walk. Sometimes other people may try to 
tell you what armor fits you. It's not for you. You need to find out what your weapon is. And when you find out what your weapon is, it is divinely powerful to demolish strongholds. And it may be something very strange in the eyes of the world, because remember, our weapons are not the same weapons that the world uses. Saul is totally worldly-minded. He's thinking, you need a big sword, boy. You need all your armor. David says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. He took them off. Then he took his staff, symbol of him being the shepherd, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. This is not your conventional soldier. Shepherd's staff, shepherd's bag, and a sling. What nonsense. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. I like this. Verse 42. He looked David over. <laughs> Are you kidding me? He saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? I find that very significant. He's even disparaging the fact that David is a shepherd. He's not coming at him with sticks. This is his shepherd's staff. Very important part of the shepherd's calling. He despises all that. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And here's the part I've never seen in my life until yesterday. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now I can't prove this, but I'm about 99.9% .9 sure which gods he was calling on. What was the chief god of the Philistines? Dagon. I can't prove it. But remember, David was very closely allied and associated with the prophet Samuel. I have no doubt David heard all about the travels of the ark from the time it was captured in Ichabod's day, going into Dagon's temple and all of its travels roundabout until he brought the ark back. I'm sure he heard all about that. He definitely heard what happened to Dagon when they set the ark next to him. Now imagine you're David and you have all that knowledge and here's this big nine foot ugly dude cursing you in the name of Dagon. I curse you boy in the name of Dagon. So what? Who's Dagon? My God's bigger. My God knocked him down. My God tore off his head and his hands. You can call on all your gods if you want. Come here. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in another name. This is the name of another God. 
This is different from your God, Dagon, or Baal, or whoever else you want to call on. I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and do what? What's the title of my message? It's all in the head. What is he going to do? Cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. David was zealous for his God. He couldn't take any more of this defiance and blasphemy of his God. He says, I want everybody out here to know my God is the true God. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, what does it say? David ran away? No. He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a, a stone, he had five. There are several theories on why he had five. There were five Philistine rulers that ruled over five districts that made up all of Philistia. Um, there's also another theory floating around that Goliath had brothers, and these were extra stones for them. I don't know why he had five stones. He only needed one. With one stone, and this this is what God was especially speaking to me over the weekend. We need to pray as David prayed, Lord, teach my hands to war and my fingers to fight. David was a skillful warrior. And I have no doubt that he had practiced a lot with that sling, but it was more than that. It was divinely powerful. It was divinely directed to the exact spot where it needed to go. Verse 49, where did it go? Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the... on the forehead. And we get even more details. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Divinely powerful. Divinely directed to bring down this high thing that had been defying Israel for so long. I don't know what your stronghold is. I don't know what your Goliath is. But you may be able to recognize there are some things in your life that have been defying you, trying to intimidate you, trying to stop you in your progress for the Lord. And maybe you've been swinging and beating and trying to do something against it. I want to, I want to help you today. Pray. Go to the Lord and ask Him, Lord, show me what my stone is. Now, we're not talking about a, little, a literal stone or slingshot. Show me what my stone is. And help me with your skill to direct it just in the right spot so that it hits my enemy in the forehead. Remember, your enemy is not your husband or your brother. These are demonic 
forces. There's more to the story. And again, it's all in the head. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. He's not done yet. David ran, stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Cut off his head. Paul says that there are arguments, there are demonic reasonings and strongholds that have to be brought down. And we need his weapons to do it. This was not a conventional weapon that David used, and he did it deliberately. Remember back in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And He will give all of you into our hands. God will use unconventional methods so that He gets all the glory. One last thing, and I'm going to end. In Revelation chapter 12, John saw a vision. Revelation chapter 12. I'm only going to comment on part of it. He saw a woman, he saw a male child, and he saw a dragon. He saw the bride of Christ. And he saw Satan. And he saw very clearly, right now, Satan's primary attention is on those who are destined to be the bride of Christ. Those are the ones he hates the most. But I want you to notice one detail that John reveals to us about the devil when he sees him in this vision. Verse 3, Revelation 12, 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with, with seven heads. Oh, interesting. It's all in the head. Satan has seven of them. Seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Verse 7. There was war in heaven. Maybe you didn't know that. There's war in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and the angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. Remember Goliath? Day and night. Defying, accusing. Has been hurled down. 
They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I don't know that I have a full understanding about these seven heads, but I'll tell you one thing that the Lord spoke to me. Satan has multiple strategies. He has multiple strategies to deceive, to blaspheme, to erect strongholds in people's minds so that they can't believe in Jesus Christ. But I do know one little detail from the next chapter, Revelation 13 and verse 1. Note this. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on the horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Seven heads, each one with a blasphemous name. That's what Goliath represented. Blasphemy. Mocking God, defying the very word of God. Coming back to our starting place today, Paul says we're in a war. Not with people. Not with flesh and blood. So don't even think about using flesh and blood weapons against the enemies that you face. These are spiritual entities. He calls them there strongholds. And we need divinely powerful weapons to demolish strongholds. And I'll tell you a couple big ones in our culture today. One of them is the evolutionary teaching that is presented in all of the public schools from kindergarten all the way up through college and graduate school. That's science. Everyone knows that science and evolution are synonymous. Wrong. It's one of the biggest lies that Satan has ever propagated. And millions and millions and millions, even highfalutin PhD physicists and college professors have fallen for the lie. And they teach it like it's science. Nothing even comes close to science in evolution. It's a lie. But it's one of those seven heads of blasphemy. And it has formed strongholds in people's minds. I know because I had it in my mind when I first was trying to come to Christ. I had heard all this evolution for years and years in, in my schooling and my, my college courses. Evolution, evolution, evolution. It was hard to bring down the praise God. It was finally demolished. And we're dealing with some other strongholds in our culture today. And all of them, if you examine them, they have one thing in common. They are rising up against the knowledge of God. They are at war with the truth of God's Word. Whether you're talking about the LGBT agenda, or atheism, or evolution, or you can fill in the blanks, they all basically are just different heads from the same serpent. They're lies... They're strongholds that are designed to keep people from believing in the good news of Jesus Christ. But I see some real good news here. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much 
as to shrink from death. We will not be overcome. We will overcome. And the strongholds, the Dagons, the Goliaths, whatever name you want to call them, that have tried to rear up their ugly heads in these last days and defy the Lord Jesus Christ, they will all be brought down. And I would recommend that you meditate. Just get that picture in your mind this week of Dagon in the temple. Standing there so arrogantly with the Ark of the Covenant that's been stolen from Israel. Ha, ha, ha. We triumphed over you until the next morning. His face is in the mud. And then the following morning, his face is separate from his body because his head and his hands have been broken off by the power of God. I want to tell you something. I am not going to be defeated. I am not going to be overcome in these last days. I am going to stand, so help me God, and I'm going to get out my little stone, and I'm going to keep directing it right into the forehead of Goliath. And I trust that you're going to join me, because we're not called to defeat, we're called to victory. We're called to overcome, even in these dark and difficult times. Stand with me. Father God, in the name of Jesus, you've not called us to defeat. You've called us, like David, to be mighty warriors, to bring glory and honor to your name, and to knock down and demolish any stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father God, Satan has blinded the minds of untold millions with lies, evolution, atheism, false religion, self-righteous uh, spirits, all kinds of addictions and idols have taken over people's hearts and minds. God, we pray that in these last days there would be a demolishing of these strongholds. Pull down the stronghold of evolution. Pull down the stronghold of immorality. Pull down the strongholds of deception and false religion. And Lord, open the blinded eyes and command the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine into the hearts of men and women so that they can be saved. Father God, we give ourselves into your hands. We pray that you would give us boldness this week to stand for you, to speak for you, and to live for you. Lord, use each and every one of us as instruments in your hands to bring glory, to bring victory, to bring defeat to the enemy, and to bring advance to the armies of God. We thank you and praise you for all these things today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.